Right now, the coronavirus is affecting the aging population and anyone with an underlying health condition or immune compromised at a greater rate than the other age group. So our understanding is that our immune system is our main defense against the virus. Given your medical background, can you tell us more about the immune system and how we can boost our immunity? Interestingly, with this COVID virus, it looks like some of the really bad outcomes that people are having isn't necessarily because their immune system is underactive. It's because it's overactive in its response to the virus. And that's leading to massive congestion of immune cells in the, lung, in the lungs. And when they're there, they block up the lung tissue so that oxygen can't be transferred from the lungs into the blood. And then people can't, basically can't breathe. Um, so it's a tightly regulated system where neither too little activity nor too much activity is well tolerated. And so this is why people, when they talk about some of the drugs we'd like to use, instead of calling them immune suppressants or immune activators, we tend to want to have immune modulators. And that means you're going to turn the knob so that it's not too loud or too soft. You need to get it just right. You're listening to the voice of Dr. Carrie Russell, who received her MD and PhD with a research focus in molecular oncology, which is the study of cancer biology at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Texas. During her postdoctoral training, she studied cardiovascular biology at Yale University School of Medicine and then served as a faculty clinician scientist at Yale for 13 years. She also co-founded and ran a clinic for patients with cardiovascular complications of cancer and cancer therapy at Smilo Cancer Center. From 2013 to 2018, she served as a senior director and translational medicine expert at Novartis Institute for Biomedical Research, where she helped design novel drugs for cardiovascular and molecular diseases, including heart failure and diabetes. Currently, she is the vice president for clinical development at Restore Bio, a clinical stage biotechnology company developing medicine to treat aging-related diseases. In this episode, Dr. Russell will share her insight on how the aging process impacts our immune system and how the immune system responds to infection in general. You're going to receive a mini course on Immunology 101. This will be very helpful for you to understand the terminologies that's used in the media about coronavirus, the COVID-19 treatments such as antiviral therapy, and the development of vaccines. With this new knowledge, you'll be able to answer questions such as, what is the difference between passive and active immunity? How do we create herd immunity for the COVID-19? What do I do today to help boost my immunity against the aging process? How will that impact our fight against the COVID-19 together? Stay tuned and listen on. Hello, friends. This is the What is Public Health podcast with your host, Dr. Ki Chan. What is public health? To me, public health is the invisible force that keeps you healthy every day, and I bet you didn't even know it. This podcast is your source of the latest trend in public health. Hello, friends. Today, I have Dr. Carrie Russell with me, who's an expert in medicine and also does research. Here, she's going to talk to us about immunology of aging. So, Dr. Russell, how are you doing today? I'm well, thank you. Suffering through the isolation <laughs> with the rest of the country and the world. Um, it's a bonding experience from a distance. Yeah, I imagine that we're all bonding collectively while we participate in physical distancing. Dr. Russell, again, thank you so much for your time. I know that you are very busy, so I really appreciate you spending the time here giving us Immunology 101 to our listeners and also for them to understand a little bit more about how infection impacts the immune system and also how aging impacts the immune system. Um, before we begin, maybe we can go down memory, memory lane and share with our audience, like, how did we meet? <laughs> sure. Yeah, you know, it's funny. When I first moved to Boston, I didn't really know anyone here. Um, I had moved here to join a really uh, great research group at um, Novartis. And I was looking for a way to meet people. And I uh, was in contact with um, someone through the research that I was doing who was a member of a Yale uh, Boston alumni group. And she invited me to come to some of their meetings. And lo and behold, I met you, the lovely uh, Ki Chan. <laughs> and a number of other really amazing women who are Yale alums from various different um, 
venues who are uh, were at the time living and working in Boston. And it's, it was turned into a great peer mentorship group. Um, and we all became very close, um, both pro- professional and personal uh, friends. I highly advocate other uh, women to seek such groups because you can be a huge amount of support. And especially in the um, professions that we're in, it's, it's really nice to have female support. Yeah, I really appreciate our Yale Women Mentoring Program. It gave me an opportunity just to meet other people, but also, you know, just to connect and network professionally and personally, like you said, because, you know, at the workplace, you can have colleagues and work and have professional relationships, but, you know, you need to have an outside outlet to maybe talk about workplace issues, knowing that the information that you share within your group is going to be confidential so you can be your true self and get also honest feedback from your um, young women uh, mentees and mentors. So I really appreciate that. And it's been many years. I think it's been over five years since our Yale Women Mentoring Group started? I think it's even longer than that because (laughs) it was not too long after I moved to Boston and I moved at the end of 2013. So I think it's it's been almost six years. Yeah. Wow. And Mm. we still keep in touch, even though I've moved whenever yeah, whenever I have a conference. A bunch of people moved away, unfortunately. Yeah. uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. We still keep in touch. Exactly. Yeah. So Dr. Russell, again, I'm really excited that you're here. Um, maybe, you know, we can learn more about your career path because you have both an MD and a PhD. Can you share your career path with us? Sure. So I became interested in science when I was in high school and um, very, I, I was one of those losers, loser, loser teenage girls who went to the corner drugstore and, and bought Scientific American instead of Cosmopolitan and 17. <laughs> Um, and, uh, then I was planning on doing a PhD and I ended up working in a lab at Baylor school of medicine. And the person I worked with there said, if you want to do medically oriented research, which was the type of thing that we were doing there, he said, you should really also get an MD and the, um, NIH and other groups had started recognizing that. Um, You really needed a group of people that could translate between PhD scientists and an MD physicians. You have a different learning set, different skill set. And they had created specialty programs where you could go to school to get both degrees simultaneously. And that was what I chose to do. And I had the great good fortune of working on my PhD at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston with an amazing... um, cancer biology scientist, Dr. Menchi Hung. He was a really fantastic mentor for me, uh, most enthusiastic scientist and just couldn't wait to get to work today to, you know, every day to solve the molecular biology of cancer. Um, his lab made huge inroads into that field. Um, and I was really lucky to, to train there. And it turned out that that actually ended up affecting the entire rest of my career, not just because of of the degree and the training, but the system of molecules that we were studying in breast cancer there um, was part of a family of of molecules called ERB2 or HER2. And over the years, as I was finishing my training there, scientists created drugs that targeted that particular family of receptors and specifically a drug that's um, called trastuzumab uh, or Herceptin. And that was put into breast cancer patients with great success as far as treating the cancer, but it simultaneously, unfortunately, in the early trials, um, caused damage to the heart. Um, and it turned out that I had clinically become interested in, in the heart um, and was training to become a cardiologist when I learned that Herceptin was toxic to the heart. And so my research lab then that I, I started once I uh, finished my medical training was focused on understanding what the role of those receptors were in the heart and blood vessels. Um, and I began seeing patients who had cancer and who were having cardiovascular complications from either the cancer itself 
or from the therapy that they received, including chemotherapy and radiation therapy. Um, so this was a, it was a, a great time. And I, I was really um, happy about that move to start a cardio-oncology program at Yale. Um, so then a few years after that, I actually joined uh, this research group at Novartis that I mentioned, um, where we were designing new drugs for heart failure. And um, more recently, I have joined a small biotech company where we're studying the effects of aging biology on multiple systems. And this brings us full circle to what we're going to talk about today. In particular, we've been interested in whether our, there are uh, ways that we can use drugs to rejuvenate aspects of the human body. So to restore the youthful uh, function of those organs. And the first such system that we've been working in has been the immune system. Um, and it, it turns out to be a very timely topic in as much as, as this COVID infectious um, pandemic is emerging, we're realizing that age definitely appears to play a role in people's outcomes after they become infected. Um, and um, it's very, very um, relevant to the types of work that we and others have been doing trying to understand what it is about aging that alters our immune responses to both injury and infection and to normal other biological processes. Just to follow up on your comment on the impact of aging on the immune system. Right now, the coronavirus is affecting the aging population and anyone with an underlying health condition or immune compromised at a greater rate than the other age group. So our understanding is that our immune system is our main defense against the virus. Given your medical background, can you tell us more about the immune system and how we can boost our immunity? Yeah, so the immune system is very interesting because it is complicated in as much as there are multiple different kinds of immune cells in the body that play different roles. And um, in any given process where the immune system is involved, in, in, and there are many of them which, which we can talk about, um, that system has to be very, very tightly regulated. So, you know, when we talk about this, it isn't a simple linear process. So, too little immune function, you know, if we think about it in, in simple terms, then leads to uh, a situation where an invader like a bacteria or a virus can come into your body and your immune system's not working very well. And, and we sort of think of these folks as, say, people who've gotten chemotherapy, whose immune systems are, are um, hindered by the chemotherapy that they got they're more susceptible to getting infections. And, and we know that also people can inherit certain genetic um, abnormalities. We think about the classic bubble boy kind of story where folks are born with an immune system that just doesn't function very well. And so they're highly susceptible to getting infections that, that go unchecked and rampant through their body. So that's the sort of classic way of thinking about the underactive immune system. But there's an other side to that coin, which is a hyperactive immune system. And that is also equally dangerous because when the immune system becomes hyperactivated, it leads to disease processes where we develop immunity against ourselves. So these are the autoimmune diseases. And you can think of things like lupus, um, even certain types of rheumatoid um, diseases like rheumatoid arthritis. These are places where our body develops antibodies against itself. That's a hyper-immune hyper um, reaction. Um, similarly, interestingly, with this COVID virus, it looks like some of the really bad outcomes that people are having isn't necessarily because their immune system is underactive. It's because it's overactive in its response to the virus. And that's leading to massive congestion of immune cells in the, lungs, in the lungs. And when they're there, they block up the lung tissue so that oxygen can't be transferred from the lungs into the blood. And then people can't, basically can't breathe. Um, so it's a tightly regulated system where neither too little activity nor too much activity is well tolerated. And so this is why people, when they talk about 
some of the drugs we'd like to use, instead of calling them immune suppressants or immune activators, we tend to want to have immune modulators. And that means you're going to turn the knob so that it's not too loud or too soft. You need to get it just right um, to get the immune system to be able to fight off the invading pathogen like the virus, but not to have it attack itself in the process. So, but what is it about the COVID-19 patients who become very ill and in some cases die because of an overactive immune response? Like they, we've been hearing the phrase, a cytokine storm. Can you tell us more what that is? Even under normal circumstances, um, when you get an infection, part of what your immune system does is that the first, it's sort of like the first responders. These are sort of like the people that drive the ambulance, right? The first responder cells in the immune system, which are often uh, immune system cells that kind of live in the various tissues, so, for example, um, in COVID, we might think there are immune, immune cells that sort of sit around the nasal passages and all the way down in, through the trachea into the lungs. And they, they sit in those passages because every day that you take a breath, you bring in all kinds of invaders, right? And those immune cells are there with, with their, as you put it, battle armor on, ready to fend off things that happen to get into your respiratory tree, including things like COVID. And so their next response is once they detect something like that coming in, they try to fight the battle themselves, but they need to bring in backup troops. And so they release a whole family of, of um, molecules that can travel through the body. And, and one family of those are called cytokines. The cytokines are the call to battle for the other cells to come quickly and help fight whatever the invader is. Um, so under normal circumstances, there's a certain amount of the cytokines that are released. It recruits waves of other immune cells, some of which live in the bone marrow, some of which live in, in specialty training centers called lymph nodes. And they all come and help fight the battle locally, say in the lung, for example. Now, if, if those original cells and the waves of cells that come after release too many cytokines, you recruit too many soldiers. And as you could imagine, then the battle, battlefield becomes so clogged up that nobody knows what anybody's doing. They just keep sending out more cytokines, more cells arrive. And now you have this situation where you've got so much inflammation, which is the, is the um, aggregation of all these immune cells trying to fight off this invader that pretty soon they're fighting a useless battle. They're fighting each other. They don't even know what's going on. And now you start getting lung damage. And so this is part of what they call the cytokine storm. It basically means you, you overdid it. You called in too many troops. You put out too many cytokines. And now you've got this congestive mess that is down actually interfering with the normal function of the lung tissue um, so that you can't breathe anymore. So you've overdone it. <laughs> and, and that's part of what, I mean, in simple terms, that's part of what the cytokine storm is all about, is too, too many red flags calling in too many soldiers. Thank you for that image now that I think it really helps clarify what a cytokine storm is and what that means is that it's just an overactive immune response and it's calling in too many troops. But right. how, yeah, so then why is it that some people with COVID-19 um, become very ill and some people don't? Is it that their own immune response based on their genetics or based on other factors that influence the callback of the cytokines or like to stop calling the troops? Like what is it that regulates the immune response so that it reduces the cytokine storms or stops it or what happens then? Yeah, so that is the million-dollar question, and I, I think we don't completely know the answer to that yet. So, you know, as the, as the infection is emerging, we're learning about um, demographic factors. So, in other words, um, I mean, you, you can speak to this better than I as an epidemiologist, but, you know, the first, the first round is just to say, who are these people that are getting ill? And so the first was, you know, look, it's really the older people that are getting, you know, are ending up dying from the illness. I mean, there's still plenty of young people that are getting ill and dying. But if you look at the percentages of people that end up dying from it, 
you know, it's been higher in the age groups, but we're starting to identify other demographic factors. So certainly um, it looks like race may play a role and that's becoming more obvious as we have more, um, you know, African-Americans being infected in this country and seeing a higher death rate, which uh, of course could be multifactorial. And then we hear stories, you know, that make us think there could be a genetic component, you know, such as families who have very high um, prevalence of dying after becoming infected with the virus. So I think it's likely multifactorial. And the aging aspect of it um, makes some sense because there are a number of different aging-related diseases in which dysregulation of immune response plays a role. So I mentioned um, things like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. And Lupus, we don't think of so much as being age-related, and, and even rheumatoid arthritis, but there's a lot of other diseases that you don't realize uh, that people die from all the time that have to do with um, dysregulated immune function that occurs with age. So as a cardiologist, I always think of cardiovascular disease, and you know the whole process um, by which atherosclerosis occurs um, which is the, those cholesterol blockages that occur in arteries that cause heart attacks and strokes. That is a highly inflammatory process. And, um, you know, why it is with age that our body mounts more and more of an immune response to cholesterol that deposits in the wall of our arteries and that causes heart attacks and strokes, I don't think we completely understand. But definitely as we age, how the body responds to something that it considers a foreign invader you know, should it be a virus? Should it be a cholesterol crystal in your artery wall? Uh, it changes. And that response becomes hyperactivated or abnormal. So instead of it just getting rid of the damaged cholesterol-ridden cell or getting rid of the infected viral-loaded cell, it becomes this, you know, too much of a reaction. So in the artery wall, it makes a big sort of pustule that can rupture and cause a heart attack or in the lung it becomes as, as we talked about before a big con congested mess that doesn't allow you to breathe um, so aging alters how the immune system functions and you know there's a lot to still be learned from that we really only know the tip of the iceberg about that process um, but aging is only one aspect of, of who we are that can cause our immune system to um, not function in the regulated way it's supposed to. So we have a lot to learn and, you know, we are learning lots from different kinds of diseases. I mean, you mentioned cancer and that's an area where we've had a revolution um, in treatments over the last decade um, by understanding what the, the immune system's role in regulating or not regulating cancer growth. Um, and, and it brings to mind one of the mechanisms by which cancer um, manages to evade detection by the immune system, because your immune system is picking up cancer in your body every day. Cancer is happening every day, and your immune system sees those cells and it gets rid of them. But cancers can be, you know, can be clever, and it can come up with ways where it can disguise itself so the immune system doesn't see it. So, for example, one of the recent therapies that's been very successful in some cancers is. Uh, is um, antibody therapies that are targeted against this PD-1 molecule. The PD-1 is kind of the, the curtain by, behind which the cancer hides and it disguises itself so that immune cells come marching up to it and say, are you one of us? Or are you foreign? And the cancer hides behind PD-1 and says, oh no, I'm just one of you. And, and the immune system walks away. But the antibodies against PD-1 now unmasks that so that your immune system can see those cancer cells and get rid of them. And for some cancers, that's been a huge um, therapeutic boon. So, so just another example of how the immune system, both in its function and dysfunction, um, hyperfunction and lack of function can both lead to disease. Wow, I didn't realize that our cancer cells dis can disguise themselves in our immune system. So we need to make our immune system smarter against them. And it's good to know that there are researchers out there developing these different types of treatment options to help dis um, remove the disguise of these cancer cells. 
You had mentioned about um, how aging affects immunity. There are some diseases that do affect just in general, like a younger population. There is still childhood cancer. Um, there are immune deficiency that happens in early on in age. So in those cases, is it that the aging process um, had influenced the immunity or is just that the, they just were born with a weaker immune system? What's your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, I mean, as, as we mentioned before, again, I bring up the, the popularly known <laughs> syndrome that's this bubble boy syndrome, which is, you know, a, an inherited immunodeficiency. So there are certainly genetic variations in our immune system that cause it not to function properly. And that doesn't have so much that, you know, so much to do with age. So we're, I think we're talking about a system that's complex and, you know, obviously if we mutate something fundamental in it, like some, something that you might inherit, um, then it may not function properly from, from the beginning. Um, however, over time, you know, why some people's immune system becomes dysregulated and others less so is like asking, why do some people when they're 60 look like they're 90? And some people like my, my beautiful mom, who's 82, looks like she's about 60. So, you know, we, we still are trying to figure out and some of it's genetic and some of it is, you know, how we um, conduct our lives behaviorally. Um, as you know, you're a great example of good behaviors. <laughs> and, um, you know, all those things add up to how our body ages. And um, the immune system just happens to be one of those things that's very sensitive to that. That's actually very good news that there's a difference between biological age and our psychological or mental age. You know, some people who are 60 years old biologically, but they look or act or the way they respond to um, life is almost like nine years old. And then there's some that are 60 and that maybe react as if they're in their forties. So do you think that behavior or lifestyle changes can almost reverse our age and in, and in that sense, help boost our immunity? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I think almost every study that's ever looked at um, dietary and exercise interventions on any aging related process has shown improvements. And, you know, I, I think there's little argument about that. I mean, drug companies then have spent decades trying to recapitulate, try to put those things into a pill. Um, and yet I, I think no one would dispute that exercise diet um, and um, avoiding obesity, you know, play a huge impact in making your biological age um, lower than your chronological age. And that's sort of what we're talking about is, is, you know, we know different people age at different rates and are there things, I mean, we can't necessarily control our genetics, although maybe we'll move to that at some point, but at this moment in time, we have to control epigenetics, you know, and that includes um, dietary and behavioral um, interventions that you can make. The impact of epigenetics can have a big influence in what genes are expressed and how those genes can then impact other mechanisms in our body and especially in the immune system. I like for us to maybe talk more about like health issues that's related to aging that's associated with the immune system. Can you elaborate some of those so that we can have a better understanding of, you know, in addition to the COVID-19, how some people are more are susceptible, but just in general, like what are some things that we should be mindful as we're aging? The generalized um, recommendations for exercise and diet you know, apply across the board. We don't really have specific interventions, you know, to say, oh, you know, as you reach the age of 63 and a half, your risk of heart attack increases and therefore you should be eating more kale. <laughs> you know, it's not that simple. <laughs> yeah. And doing more and doing more aerobics uh, by bicycling, you know, mm -hmm. we're not at that level. And so, you know, I, I think a generalized r response to, you know, steady exercise. And, you know, this keeps going back and forth. You know, one week somebody's abdicating, you know, whatever they can use to sell their <laughs> peloton. You know? 
and yeah. next week's gonna somebody's gonna advertise the set of rubber bands that you can order on Amazon. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, I think whatever works for people is is what they should do. Um, and we just know that there's that the, the most important thing I think here is that there's an inverse relationship between being sedentary and and having um, many of these diseases that are age related and a part only a part of that is is related to immune function um, but that's an important component of it you know one of the most demonstrably um, evident things that I can think of about how immune function changes with age is your response to a vaccine, for example. And so it's, it's been well known and well studied that as we age, you know, when you get your regular influenza vaccine, you don't develop as many antibodies to the vaccine. Therefore, you're more susceptible to getting influenza when it goes around. And so, you know, people have developed these double booster kinds of influenza vaccines that are given in elderly patients to improve that response. And in fact, um, there's published data that intervening on some of these aging programs can improve the immune system's response to vaccines as well, just re-illustrating that by making the immune system function more like a younger immune system, you can restore some of these uh, functions that then lead to protection against disease. That's very interesting to know that there are different vaccine protocols for different age group uh, yep. that's related to their immune system. I actually didn't realize that, that as they age, that they develop less antibodies. Why does our immune system do that? Wouldn't does our immune system realize that as we're aging, we probably need more these antibodies to really help combat issues because as we age, we may be more susceptible. So yep. is, is it that we have to re-educate our immune system or give them a, a refresher to do its job more properly? Yeah, so it's it's the problem is it's not just one single cell type that's affected by the aging process. It's, it's multiple ones. And that's why having something that can kind of um, reprogram the whole immune system to function in a, in a more youthful way um, is attractive. Um, so I, you know, I, there's no, I, there's not just a simple answer to the question that you're asking. I can tell you, well, you know, now instead of having as many T cells in the immune system, you have less, I mean, because that might be true, but you also have less specific types of T cells or they react in a different, slightly different way. And, and so, you know, it's easy when we start asking those questions to get way down in the weeds. And, and that is what we need to do scientifically. But then we need to come up with integrated ways that we can impact the myriad changes that are taking place in the immune system with age. And often that's not just going to be one single therapy. It's going to need to be something that really targets a fundamental biological process that's impacting all the different cells in the immune system. Because I was just wondering, you know, as we're aging, it may be a little bit more difficult to educate the immune system since it's already been working and it's been exposed to many things. You know, there has been some speculation that we should have children, you know, play in the dirt, get exposed to um, as many bugs out there so that they could develop a better immune system. What, yeah. What's your thoughts on that? Because I think now a lot of the way how kids are brought up is they're very isolated. They're more indoor. They're not playing outside as much. I mean, I remember when I was growing up, I looked forward to recess. I love playing in the ground, getting dirty. And, and, and every day when I come home from school, like my pants would be all in dirt and my mom would be like, oh my gosh, I have to wash these clothes again. <laughs> and so I'm just wondering, you know, how does childhood playtime impact our immune system later on? That's a really interesting question. And, and there is scientific evidence that um, having early exposure to certain things um, does promote a more healthful immune system. You know, one interesting aspect of this is the peanut allergy thing. So, um, you know, decades ago, there were far fewer people who had peanut allergies. And that was because peanut butter and peanut products were introduced into the diet of very young infants, you know, almost as soon as they were eating solids. Um, and people then developed tolerance to peanut antigens because peanut peanuts have are, are very immune <laughs> reactive. Um, 
And there is some thought and there is some data that suggests that the later we introduce peanut antigen into the diet of, of infants, the more likely it is that their immune system, instead of being tolerant to that antigen, in other words, not creating a huge reaction against it, um, becomes less likely. So, you know, it, it's kind of one of these double-edged swords, right? It's the, it's the good old, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger adage, which turns out to be somewhat true, right? That's what I tell myself every time I go to the now closed gym. <laughs> um, but the peanut allergy piece is really important because people now are advocating judicious introduction of peanut antigens into infants' diets earlier to prevent introduction of the antigen into their diet late enough that their immune system has never seen it before and now will mount a huge response and cause, you know, an anaphylactic reaction, which can, you know, actually be, be fatal. So some people have speculated that the reason that we see more children with peanut allergies is because people have, you know, been hesitant to introduce peanut antigen into infants' diets because of perceived worries about peanut allergies. But now, in fact, they've actually produced generations of children who have more peanut allergies by delaying the introduction of that into their diet. On, on that note, then why is it that sometimes we're not allergic to something early on and then we develop an allergic reaction later on? I mean, I'm just thinking about just a seasonal allergy. Like growing up, I wasn't allergic. Um, but then as I age, or maybe when I'm moving to different locations, I've, you know, might have de developed a hay fever, but only for a couple of weeks. What is that about our immune system that's reacting um, to that? Yeah, so the, that's another excellent question. I mean, so that could be multifactorial. I mean, one is definitely, so as, as I mentioned with the infants, you know, when you, it, there's a learning period for the immune system, which is why when you have a tiny infant, you don't want to take it out and, you know, stick it in front of people who are ill because, you know, infants are more susceptible to infections because their immune system hasn't been educated yet. So this is part of the peanut thing, because if you get peanut in there while it's being educated, it'll say, oh, all right, I've seen that before. I don't need to worry about it, right? If you wait till too late, the immune system has never seen it, and then it sees it and it's more mature and it can create a bigger reaction. So similarly, as you age, um, you know, your immune system gets exposed to a variety of things. And sometimes it's just, does something look like something that it thinks it's seen before and can have a big reaction to. Um, other times it's that it's something it hasn't seen before. So if you move from one location to another, obviously the types of pollens and other things that tend to cause these seasonal allergies are different. And maybe you grew up in a region where oak is predominant and now you move someplace where you have um, more grass pollen or something and you just haven't been exposed to that. And now your system hasn't been educated to know that that's not something to be terribly worried about. And it creates this hideous reaction that is unnecessary and unpleasant. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that, there's several different things, not just what happens to the immune system as we age, but also what it's been exposed to and, um, and how it can react and how quickly it can react. Because once it's been exposed to something, um, it creates cells that we call them memory cells because they remember having seen that before and now they can mount a response, you know, 10 times as fast as the first time they saw it. And that's part of what leads to these, some huge, you know, anaphylactic reactions like what people have to peanuts and other certain types of other um, allergens. As the immune system is being educated, you know, as you have described and get exposed to different antigen so that it prompts a, a memory of it. Do you think that, you know, with the COVID-19, should we expose people to it so that they've developed their own immunity so that eventually we have herd immunity against this infection? I mean, there's just so many controversy about what are the next steps as the days goes in terms of like when we go outside again. So I'm just curious what your thoughts on that. I mean, would people benefit from getting exposed especially those who are healthy that can take it. But then right now those, you know, there are, we do see people who are exposed and get infected and they are not, then they're not recovering, which is, you know, the worst case scenario. But what's your yep. thoughts on this? Like, should we think about COVID-19 as 
as a peanut when we're developing a better response later on by small doses? What do you think? Well, so I think we still need, those are questions that we need some time to answer. So I would absolutely not advocate that people intentionally be exposed to this right now. Um, But, you know, you got to remember that this idea of small dose exposure to a, to a foreign pathogen and inducing um, immunity um, is, is, is age old, right? So there was a beautiful article that was written within the last week or so in the New York Times that reviewed the history of people being exposed to smallpox. So, so people actually used to pay money to, to take pustules from children infected with smallpox so that they could give small doses of the infected pustule to themselves and to their children to induce immunity. So they'd get a little case of smallpox but they wouldn't get this rampant thing that was scarring or even lethal, um, except sometimes they did. <laughs> so sometimes that little inoculum went further than you thought. I mean, this is all the ba- the fundamental basis of how we came up with vaccines, right? The question is, can you figure out a way to dose just the right amount to induce an, a healthy immune response without giving somebody full-blown disease? Um, and And even the response we mount to the antigens that are given in the vaccines. I mean, we all know sometimes when you get the flu vaccine, you feel like you have the flu, right? And um, a part of that is your body's immune response to those proteins. I mean, you won't get the flu necessarily, but you can get a lot of the same symptoms. You can feel crummy. And um, and that's because of your body's immune response. Um, so I think we need a lot more work before we're going to understand that. It looks like, based on early data, that p- at least people who've gotten the virus um, are developing antibodies. They look like the types of antibodies that would promote um, resistance to additional infection. But even that remains to be seen because we're not you know, routinely testing everyone who's gotten the infection for these antibodies. There are even people now who are trying to use serum from people who've had the infection that would contain such antibodies to treat other people who are extremely ill with the virus right now. So this is a rapidly moving field. Um, and I think, unfortunately, we, we shouldn't react by intentionally exposing people because we have no way of controlling that. We have no way of knowing how much of a dose they will get. We have no way of knowing whether they're one of the people who, whose immune system is going to make an overabundant reaction and, and cause them to be unable to breathe or have other, you know, bad systemic effects. So we're going to need to wait for the science to catch up with, uh, with the infection to understand how to control the immune system to, to fight this without um, becoming hyperactivated in cytokine storms and, and other such um, just for our listeners um, to get a better understanding about immunity and herd immunity, you had just mentioned about that there are some, in, in some cases, that serums from people who are infected and recover, their antibodies are being used to be injected to people who are infected. And there is right now uh, many pharmaceutical companies aiming to develop a vaccine. Can you tell us the difference between passive and active immunity? Like why the antibody from a patient who were infected and recovered and the, and, and the difference in how it works and, and compared to a vaccine? So um, passive immunity, which is what you're doing when you're transferring already formed antibodies from one patient who's had the virus and recovered to someone who has actively the virus, um, is a way for you to get ahead of the immune response um, in the person who's infected. So let's say you get exposed to the virus and your body has ways of initially detecting the virus. This is what those cells that are standing guard all along your respiratory tract are doing. They, they can recognize all kinds of things, even if they've never seen it before and, and initiate the call to battle, right? The cytokines. Um, then there's a much more regulated response that happens as those other members of the immune system arrive at the scene of battle. Part of them have the function to record who this invader is, create specific antibodies that will attack that invader alone. And then they, you know, once the, if they successfully fight off the reaction, they'll create more and more antibodies that help other cells to recognize 
the virus and cells that are infected with the virus and kill it. So, so that they, this response of creating that molecular signature of who the invader is and what they look like and creating more antibodies that helps to amplify the battle response against that invader takes time. And, you know, during that time, the virus can continue to replicate relatively unchecked until you create that response. And sometimes that takes days or weeks. It's the same response that you're getting when you get a vaccine. You're giving some of the same proteins that, that create that molecular signature to somebody who's never seen it before. And their immune system then will make these antibodies and there'll be a set of cells, these memory cells that we mentioned, that keep that code for that antibody. And they, they wait. And if they see it again, they start cranking out the antibody again. So that's the immune response that, that we're headed for. That's an active immune response. So um, passive means I'm giving you antibodies from somebody who's already made that response by virtue of their infection. And an active immunization um, occurs during the viral infection itself because you will eventually make antibodies to it. The problem is that that takes time. Or we can give a small dose of it, you know, in a vaccine that will create that same immune response and then give you active immunity for the future. So, Dr. Russell, thank you for clarifying the differences between passive immunity and active immunity. Um, I would like for you to help clarify um, the antibody response. So the antibodies are taken from someone else and given to another person. So how does that, you know, the other person, the patient who's receiving the antibody, re- uh, responds appropriately to those antibodies so that it's not reacting inappropriately or hyperactive because it's getting something from someone else? So in general, um when people harvest plasma from somebody who's already had the infection, who has is now immune and has antibodies against the virus, um, they'll prepare the blood in a way that they somewhat purify out the proteins that contain antibodies. That will be a collection of whatever of those antibodies are floating around in the, the donor person, the person who's immune. Um, so those are all human human antibodies, and when they get infused into the sick person, the, the recipient of that, you know, I think what you're asking is why don't they have a reaction because those are foreign to them, those antibodies against COVID and whatever else they happen to be circulating as far as antibodies go. And the answer to that is that rarely you can have reactions to that. But in general, when, when patients see an antibody that looks like it's a human antibody, they don't generally form a reaction to that. Um, there, is, there can be some immune response, but it's actually usually not a huge one. It's not like a viral particle. The, another human body will see a human antibody, even if it's not their own, as being more or less like something that their body generated. And we have a lot of antibody therapeutics out there, um, all these um, many, many um, antibody therapeutics that are human antibodies that were created in a research lab that we're using to treat diseases. So I mentioned the PD-1 target in cancer. The drugs that are being used to, to block that PD-1 right now are all human antibodies. So they, they weren't generated in humans, but they are, they look like a human antibody. And when you give that to patients in general, they don't react to that because their, their body sees it as part of their own immune response. Um, it's not a hundred percent, but in general, so it's a little bit more complicated when you're talking about just purifying a pile of antibody proteins out of a donor person and giving it to a patient, because then it's not just one antibody, like you're getting in a in a laboratory-derived antibody preparation that's a drug. Um, So you can have more complicated reactions to other human uh, proteins that come from other people. But in general, if you take out the red blood cells um, and you take out the white blood cells and you just end up with this plasma, they call it immunoglobulin fraction, 
um, it doesn't seem to provoke in general a huge immune response. And and then those antibodies can start binding to virally infected cells and they will instruct the the recipient's immune system to attack those cells. So it just it skips ahead in the story and allows that person's body to mount a much more effective immune response against the infected um, the virally infected cells. Wow, that's great to hear that people who are recovered can contribute to another person who's sick. Do you know we if think. this... We're yeah, still yeah. waiting to see if that yeah. actually works, but it's a strategy that's been used in other infect, infect, infections, um, so it's certainly worth a try. Yeah, so do you think that there should be like a, a local or state or a national campaign to have people who have recovered to then donate their antibodies like similar to like a blood bank it would be like an like antibody bank what do you think about that and i think if is is the process of donating plasma difficult i mean maybe you could uh, maybe you can help describe that so that is it like a like like giving blood like it's within an hour so maybe i can help demystify the process so that people are, will be more willing to donate their antibodies i think we'll see you know some of these these studies are just now being done you know um, this is why it's really important during this period of time that we balance the desperate need to do anything we can to save people that are dying with the um, willingness to take the time to collect scientific um, data to inform you know, future efforts. And you know, I really applaud how willing the um, scientists and physicians in China have been to share their experiences because that's really helped to inform, you know, other countries um, that are behind them in this epidemic um, in, in what they've already tried that didn't work, what they've tried that might work. Um, but we've got to do it in a scientific way so that we're not just, you know, haphazardly trying this and that because it sounds good. So when you talk about creating banks of plasma from immune donors, um, you know, I think, we need a little bit more information about how that needs to be done before we should start whole scale doing that because, um, you know, I'm not sure exactly how they've been collecting these things, but plasma, if it's actually plasma phoresis, and it may be being done differently in different places, but that's a little bit more than just a regular blood donation because, um, your blood goes through a machine that separates out the red blood cells so that you don't lose a large volume of blood like you do when you give a whole blood donation. Um, and so it takes a little bit longer. It's a little bit more complicated. Um, it's not a high risk procedure by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a little bit more labor intensive than just a regular blood donation. Again, I'm not sure exactly what different centers are doing with regard to that, but I would imagine that if we were to create banks of this stuff, we might be using a method like that. Um, again, I'm not, <laughs> I am in no way an expert on, on blood product donation. <laughs> so um, I, I think though, if it looks like this is a strategy that can save certain people, then what you're proposing is something that, that would certainly be undertaken. Um, I just think we're not quite there yet to activate that until we see how that's working. And, you know, it may be that, you know, blood product, whatever, immunoglobulin fractions from one donor are more effective than others. That's certainly that something that's been seen in other infectious and, and diseases where immunoglobulin from donor, immune donors has been used. So sometimes if we can figure out how to define a priori, whether somebody's a quote, good donor or not good donor, you know, not just just having had the infection may or may not mean that they have the types of antibodies or sufficient amounts of antibodies to really help the recipient's immune system. So, you know, we, we have a lot of those kinds of technical questions to work out before we should start just harvesting these things large scale. And just to follow up on this discussion on blood, is there some speculation that blood types can impact someone's susceptibility to COVID-19? So in general, like how does blood type impact immune response and what's your thoughts about that? I would say from a high level, we know that there are correlations between, you know, not just the regular things we think about like AB, you know, plus minus kind of blood groups, but there's a lot of other um, 
antigens on on blood that um, mark it as being from a specific individual. And those those antigens are the things that drive things like um, rejection of, of organs and things like that. Um, so beyond just the AB plus minus um, blood antigen type, again, there's a bunch of other blood surface antigens. And we know that there are correlations between which groups of those things people carry, and this is all determined genetically, and their susceptibility to various diseases. The problem is, for me at this point in time, not being an expert in this, there's a little bit of a disconnect between understanding that there's a correlation there and knowing what exactly it is about those um, markers of good or bad responses to a particular disease um, that drives the biology of that in, and whether we could use that information to develop specific therapeutics to, to modulate how the immune system responds. There's a disconnect there. We still, we still need more work to really be able to use that information in that way. So I would say it will not surprise me if we find that there are certain blood groups that are, I would call them biomarkers of poor responses or good responses to COVID infection, um, how we would use that information to specifically derive treatments or prevention of the disease, I think, is going to be a longer haul. On another note, there are a lot of antiviral therapies out there for many different diseases. And right now, there is the use of the malaria treatment for COVID-19 patients. Can you tell us more about what you think about that? I mean, the choice of that particular therapy and what are some of the outcomes that we're seeing in patients? So, yeah, that's still a very open question. So I, I am not firsthand aware of exactly where this idea came from, although um, there are a couple of different aspects of using, um, using hydroxychloroquine for treating COVID that I can understand why people might have reached for that beyond the fact that it's sitting on the shelf, although right now it's not sitting on the shelf because people are buying it willy-nilly. Um, so two things, though. One is that um, scientists have shown in the past that this class of drugs can activate antiviral uh, responses in cells. So that's appealing, right? How that happens is um, less clear. There's some data about how viruses replicate and whether the drug will prevent the virus being able to, you know, reproduce itself um, appropriately in, in cells and be released into the system. So that's one potential mechanism, but there are many others as well. So the antiviral aspect of it is interesting, but more traditionally, this is a drug that's been used to treat something that we talked about earlier, which is lupus. Um, because it actually can tune down some aspects of the immune response. So you can see here, it's an immune modulator. It turns down some inflammatory responses in autoimmune diseases like lupus, where it's been pretty successful. Um, but in other circumstances, it might be helping to boost things like antiviral immune responses. So, so it's an interesting molecule. It's a very old molecule, um, it's so, and it's not just targeting one specific aspect of the disease. It's in no way specific for this disease. So I think it remains, you know, it's also can be a highly toxic drug and can have significant cardiac toxicity, for example. And so we need to be careful how we're using it. And this is another one that we really need to apply scientific rigor to. We can't just pull it off the shelf and throw it at people because we've got nothing else because we may induce more harm than good. And, and we've already seen people who've poisoned themselves and died as a result of trying to take preparations of this that weren't meant for human consumption. Um, so I think we need to, to trial it if there's some early evidence. Um, and I, I suppose there have been some small groups of patients treated with it where it's perceived that there's been success, but we need to, we're gonna need to subject this to real clinical scientific rigor to make sure we don't end up doing more harm than good in our haste to try to do anything at all. Science should be evidence-based and that especially recommendations and policies that we're projecting out there for the population to use, that it should be evidence-based, that it's not based on like a hunch or a suggestion or a maybe, because these are people's lives at stake. 
right. In, yeah. And so in general, like what, what's the mechanism behind antiviral therapy? I mean, I know that the choice of the, the particular one we're using now, we don't really know what was the origin of that particular choice, but just in general, like maybe you could share with our audience, like what does antiviral therapy do? So again, the, the hydroxychloroquine or, you know, question is a little bit different because we don't really have a very specific mechanism for that. The newer antivirals, and again, I am not an infectious disease or virology expert, so uh, I will be talking about this at kind of a high level, but, um, you know, I, there's been, there was a revolution of work done around how viruses um, invade cells um, reproduce themselves, circulate around the body, invade other cells. And, and um, a lot of that happened around the time of the HIV infection. Although some of that virology work had been ongoing before that in cancer biology labs, because um, some types of viruses contain genes that can create cancer in cells that they infect. So so, but the big boost of antiviral therapeutics obviously came during the era where we were trying to treat HIV. And, you know, when I think back about even my own career, the dramatic impact that we've had on that disease has been revolutionary. And a lot of that came from, you know, basic scientists really unraveling, you know, how do viruses do what they do to, to cause infection? And so some of the things that people have created um, are inhibitors of specific um, enzymes or other proteins that viruses require in order to efficiently reproduce themselves or uh, proteins that sit on the surface of cells that viruses bind to in order to invade those cells. Um, so are things that disrupt specifically or relatively specifically the way that viruses reproduce their own um, DNA or RNA. Um, so there's lots of targeted things that are specific to the virus's biology that we've created. Um, some of those mechanisms overlap between viruses and others do not. So you will, if you looked in clinical trials, the, the FDA government site that shows registered clinical trials that are ongoing, you will find already some companies that have antivirals that they've developed to treat other viruses to interrupt their biological processes that, that, we, you know, that there are mechanisms that may overlap with how this, this particular coronavirus um, replicates itself or invades cells and so forth. So you'll see there are already trials that people have in place. And you see also some compassionate use of some of these HIV drugs and so forth that people are trying. And again, I think, you know, it remains to be seen whether or not the overlap between how these different viruses function is sufficient that those drugs that work well for one virus will work well for another. Um, but people are thinking along all those lines. Believe me, the scientific community is activated beyond any immune system. <laughs> you can, the cytokine storm has occurred in the scientific community and everyone's been called to battle. So, you know, this is, I mean, that's part of the, you know, as you're sitting around feeling depressed about being at home by yourself or uh, unable to go out to public places that you love, like the library or museums, and just know that the scientific community is is working around the clock, thinking of everything that they might have in the closet or everything they've learned from every other disease that they've treated that might be similar that could be brought to bear on this. And, you know, I'm sure that's part of where the hydroxychloroquine piece came from. We, we got to, we don't have time to develop a whole panoply of brand new drugs. So we got to look at what's in the cupboard and see if we, it will be applicable to this disease. And the antivirals are, you know, high on the list because We've done so much work to understand how viruses work, um, but it, you know, maybe not as much on coronaviruses as, as HIV. It, it just remains to be seen whether we can cross the information that we know from one over to the other. As we come to the end of our interview, Dr. Russell, again, thank you so much for your time and all this important information, how it relates to our immunity, uh, giving us immunology 101, and how our immune system 
fights against infection, antiviral therapy, and also how aging impacts immunity. So we really appreciate all this information that you share and also help clarify some of the terms we're listening, like on the news, like cytokine storm, like what exactly is that? And then, you know, some speculation about blood type influencing our immune response and why our immune system can become hyperactive and how that is actually influencing, you know, our reaction to COVID-19. So I really appreciate that you spent the time, you know, sharing your knowledge and what are some things that we could all um, learn from each other about the COVID-19. So Dr. Russell, like, what are you up to now? I have the great good fortune to be um, at a biotech company where we're trying to um, use what we know about the fundamental mechanisms of the biology of aging to um, to treat human diseases and to delay um, aging of, of multiple different types of organs. Um, and in particular, we've been in, uh, involved in studying immunosenescence, so senescence of the immune system. Um, and we've also been working on neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's disease. Um, so it's been a very exciting, um, very exciting endeavor. I mean, you know, having to work from home has been a little bit of a hindrance because I, I like the people that I work with and I miss seeing them in the office, but, uh, you know, like everyone, I'm trying to learn to be more, um, socially facile with the types of, um, digital interfaces that we have, you know. Um, and so, you know, hopefully work can continue to move forward. It's, it's been a tough time because, you know, for those of us who are usually involved in clinical trials, obviously the focus has really centered on, on COVID clinical trials and preventing people, you know, from having to be exposed to the virus by having to come to research centers and so forth. Um, and I'm hoping that won't be too disruptive to the overall field of biomedical research. So thank you so very much, Dr. Russell. And what is the best way for people to reach out to you? I'm on LinkedIn, so feel free to reach out. Oh, well, thank you so very much, Dr. Russell. And be safe and be healthy. And off to our listeners out there. Again, if you have any questions about this episode or other topics that you're interested in, please connect with me that we can all get through this together because we're all in this together. If you got questions about any of the episodes, feel free to reach out to me directly. And while you're there at it, please subscribe to the podcast and share the episode that you felt connected with so we could be a part of this collective invisible force called public health. Thanks.